John chapter 10, it's a good chapter. And I want to get into it in just a moment. But before then, I just want to say uh, two brief words. A brief word of thank you and a brief word of kind of how I've been viewing these first three or four months of me being here as your new rector. The word of thank you is thank you for welcoming, welcoming us so warmly. It's, it's been tremendous. It really has. A lot of people have been asking us, how you doing? And that's a fair question because there's been a fair bit of change for us, a lot of change for you guys as well. But God has blessed us immensely and richly. Every, after every service on Sunday, we go home and we put Jeremy to bed and then Susie and Annabelle and I sit around the table and kind of recover from a heavy social morning. <laughs> and, uh, and we sit there and Susie and I just look at each other and go, I can't believe we get to be a part of this. It's just so rich, and it's so nourishing, and it's such a delight. And every time we get to sit down for dinner with you, like, I can't believe this person is in our church. They're so wonderful, and it's, we're learning from them. So I just want to say thank you for being a church that is an absolute delight to be a part of, that has been tremendously mature in the way you have handled this transition, that has gone above and beyond in being generous to us and welcoming. And it's one of those things where Bishop Todd used to say to me all the time before I ever showed up here, he said, trust me, this is the church I go around to all the other churches bragging about. And I, you don't really get it until you show up. And then I showed up and I'm part of it. And I'm like, yeah, I want to go to all the other churches and brag about them. <laughs> I think my parents and in-laws are probably sick of hearing us talk about it. So that's a word of thank you. And the word of the next word is like, what, about, what I've been up to? What, how am I viewing these early months? Uh, the question I've had people ask me the most, by far the most, is, so what's your vision? And that's totally understandable. Like, there's curiosity. Like, who is this guy and what's he on about? There's also a sense of maybe expectation, hopeful expectation. Like, this is a new season with new possibilities. Like, where are we going? This could be exciting. Or there could be a little bit of hesitancy. <laughs> I really like the way things have been. What are you going to change that I really like? And so that question, like, what is your vision, is a totally understandable question. But I think my answer to it in these early months has often been a little bit of a letdown and disappointing. Because the reality is, is that I haven't come here with some grand vision of what I want Holy Trinity to be or some way in which I kind of want to shape Holy Trinity according to my own image in some way, shape, or form. I've come in much more with these three L's in mind, like look, learn, and listen. Attend to who the people are and what their stories are that make up this congregation. Get to know the DNA of Holy Trinity Church here in Orange County. What is it that the Spirit of God has been doing? What is it that the Spirit of God is doing? And what could he be leading us into in this new season? So I, it's more like for me in these first three, four months, it's this posture of, of attentiveness and prayerfulness and listening for me has been the key word. What does it mean to listen to the people? What does it mean to listen to God? And in our passage this morning in John chapter 10, it's that theme of listening that I actually want to bring up for us. Not only because it's something I've just been wrestling with in my first couple months as your rector, but I think it's something as a congregation we need to wrestle with in this new season of life together. What does it mean to enter into a season of listening? Like, how do we hear the voice of Jesus? How do I know that I'm hearing Jesus' voice and not my own voice or somebody else's voice? 
How do I listen wisely and sensibly, yet trustingly and obediently? How do I become the sort of person that wants to listen and that, if spoken to, is ready to hear and willing to obey? And then, like, what does it look like to listen in the midst of all the fast-paced, hyper-busy, highly anxious life of Orange County in Southern California? God, teach us how to listen. So what I want to do this morning is just spend a little time in John chapter 10 preaching to myself, assuming that I'm not the only one that wants to learn how to listen. (laughs) And I think what John chapter 10 does for us is it doesn't really answer all of these questions that are really concrete and practical and important questions for us to answer. But what it does is it just brings us into this shepherd-sheep relationship, which is at the core of listening. And it shows us the characteristics of the sheep and then the characteristics of the shepherd. So it teaches us about the dynamics of this relationship in which we are listening. So the characteristics of the sheep, the defining characteristic of the sheep is that they are listening to the shepherd. That they want to listen and that they respond Now, I know that some of you might be a little bit rusty on your kind of shepherding technique, so let me fill you in a little bit. I just came from Scotland, so I know about this stuff. (laughs) At night, a shepherd has two goals. How do I keep my sheep warm, and how do I keep my sheep safe? And so, especially in the Middle East, what they did is that many shepherds would get together when it came as the sun was going down, and they would put their tents up in a circle. So you get five or ten different shepherds with their flocks. They put it in a circle. And then they would invite all their sheep to actually gather and huddle together into one big mass in the middle of the circle for the night because it created warmth. And then by having the tents around, it kind of kept them contained. And then there were just little, there were gaps between the tents. And you could put doorkeepers there to keep, to fend off animals that were trying to get in or keep the sheep from getting out. And so it was this sense of security. And what would happen in the morning is that the shepherds would wake up and it was time for them to lead their sheep out into pasture and to get them some food and to take them somewhere. But all the sheep were just mixed together with all the other shepherd's sheep. So what the shepherds did is they trained their sheep to know their voice in particular, to know a particular call, to know a particular tone, to know a particular word. And so the shepherds would just call, start their specific call, and the sheep that belonged to them would know their particular voice and would start following them out to the hillside. They knew their shepherd's voice in particular, and his was the only voice that they responded to. And so it's this imagery that Jesus evokes in kind of verses 3 to 5. It's this image of being gathered in and huddled together in a place of safety and of refuge and of belonging, and then of Jesus calling them and leading the sheep out into, let's say, vocation and mission and daily life. The defining characteristic of the sheep is that they listen when the shepherd calls. See, this listening aspect, I think, is so key to how we understand prayer and what prayer is. There was a 20th century century Swiss Jesuit theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar, which is just a great name. He wrote a little book on prayer, about 300 pages little. And in this little book, it's it's a marvelous little book, but he talks about contemplative prayer, and he says two things that were totally transformative for me. He said, 
He said, prayer is not, first of all, an act of speaking. It is an act of being spoken to. Prayer is not, first of all, an act of speaking, but an act of being spoken to, of listening to the voice of God. It's this assumption that God isn't just up there mute and silent, waiting for us to like engage him in conversation, but that God is always present and always speaking and always wanting to engage us in a sort of conversation. He speaks and he initiates. And the second thing is that prayer is not like a superhuman act. <laughs> it's not some special power that we, that we have to like come to grips with. Prayer is like the most fundamentally human act that we can ever do. Think about that. Prayer is not some superhuman act. It is the most human action we can take to be in conversation and communion with God. He said, God designed us for this. Why, when Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, does he say, you who hear my words and do them are like the person who has built their house on the rock? Why, when uh, Jesus sees that Mary is sitting at his feet. Instead of helping in the kitchen with Martha, he says, and she's listening to his teaching, he says, Mary has chosen the good portion. Why is it that on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father speaks about his son, and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And what is the one command that he gives? Listen to him. And there's a personal and a corporate application for us here. See, this personal application is, I, I think listening to him does mean like set times of space and silence where we seek to discern his voice. But I don't think it's just for unique seasons of life when we have unique decisions. I think what he's calling us into is this continual, long, rich conversation in the details of our daily life. Like think about the image of the sheep. Every single morning, they're called out of the pen to go about their day in the fields, and then they're called and brought back. It's this image that in the daily details of life, God is speaking to us, and the routines of our life unfold as we are attentive to and listen and seek to discern his voice in our lives. Yesterday, I was looking through C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters again. If you haven't read that book, you should read it again. It's really good. And you have Screwtape writing letters to Mr. Wormwood, who is kind of like this devil tempter in training. How do you get the uh, Christians to get away from the enemy, who is the Christian God? So that's what he's training them into. And he says, let me tell you something. He says, Christians who have these grand visions of all the things they're going to do in the future and are always looking towards their big hopes and expectations, you don't have to worry that much about those Christians, really. Don't worry about that. He said, what you really have to worry about is you have to worry about those Christians that wake up in the morning and say, God, I just want to be faithful right now in this moment. The next minute, the next hour, the next morning, the next day and they take it one step at a time. He said, those are the people that you have to watch out for. Listening to his voice. And I wonder how this image gently and subtly shifts the sort of questions that maybe we as a community, or I myself am asking in these early months of this new season together. 
Like, no, not only asking what is our vision, but maybe asking, like, has our vision been born out of listening? And we could break this down into a couple different questions. The question of action, are we seeking to know his voice? The question of being, are we the sort of people who want to hear his voice? And then the question of practice, what is keeping us from hearing his voice? You see, John chapter 10 describes not only the dynamics of the shepherd and the sheep in this listening and leading relationship, but it also says there are strangers and there are thieves and there are robbers, and their voices are part of the situation as well. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, says Jesus. Jesus comes to give abundant life, but the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And one of the distinctives of the sheep is not only that they know the voice of their shepherd, but they also are able to discern and flee from the voice of the thief, of the stranger in this passage. So how are, what is keeping us from hearing the shepherd's voice? What does the thief want to do? How does he want to steal and kill and destroy? I think he wants to speak words that distract and distort and cause doubt that distract and distort and cause doubt. So think of distraction for me just for a second. Like we long, I think as human beings, to hear the voice of God spoken into the very particulars of our daily lives. Yet it's so often the particulars of our daily lives that we feel like are distracting us from being able to hear the voice of God. And so it ends up being profoundly disappointing. I think Stacy Green, who wrote the text for our art card, just nailed this in the first few lines. I mean, just let me read these to you of distraction. When I first read these a couple weeks ago, it just rung so true with me. We are surrounded by voices clamoring for our attention. Voices both external and internal. News feeds, social media, books, podcasts. There are so many external voices claiming to speak the truth, and internal voices also vie for our attention. Just pause and think about all the voices that have clamored for your attention this week. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters gives another bout of advice. Mr. Wormwood is told that the best way to deceive Christians away from the enemy is not to put things into their mind, he says, but is to keep things out of their mind. It's to distract. He said, it's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. But distraction isn't all, only it. It's also distortion. You see, I think on, underneath our distractions often is a sense of distorted or disordered desire, one could say. Like maybe my problems aren't ultimately just about distraction, but maybe it's about the sorts of desires that I actually have. James A.K. Smith in the book, What You Are, What You Love. Some of you probably know about this. I hear you spent about a year going through it. You are what you love. And on the back cover, he gives this synopsis, and it's brilliant. He says, you are what you love, but you might not love what you think. You are what you love, but you might not love what you think. 
And then he goes on to talk about how like the rhythms and the liturgies and the structures of our daily lives and the sorts of small decisions that we make at every sort of corner aren't just like random things for us. They are actually kind of indicators and revealers of the inner desires and workings of our soul. So for me, like when I have a question about what time to get up in the morning, (laughs) or when I have a question in the evening and I finally put the kids to bed and peace has finally descended upon the home and I finally finished cleaning the dishes and our house looks somewhat presentable, am I going to get on YouTube? Am I going to read a book? Am I going to have a conversation with Susie? Like, What am I going to do with that time? And these sorts of decisions aren't just arbitrary and random they actually kind of click into some of the deepest desires that I have and expose them. So there's not only a sense of distraction, but there's also the desires that lie underneath the distraction. And do we really want to be a people who hear the voice of God? Because it's not always comfortable to hear the voice of God. I mean, think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We're talking about All Saints Day just a couple days ago. And last night, we were talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life in Sacred Supper's group. He's in New York. People Connections gave him safety so that he could go to Union Theological Seminary and teach in the United States and get away from what was going on in Germany during World War II. And he thinks he hears the voice of God. Go back to be with your people. Karl Barth wrote him a letter encouraging him that that's what he should do. (laughs) And so he goes back. And he ends up eventually, it costs him his life. The first line, I'll never forget the first time I, I read his The Cost of Discipleship. And the very first line is, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived that out. Do we really want to hear the voice of God? Because what is it going to mean for us? Do I really want to move there? Do I really want to make that decision? Do I really want to care for that person, Lord? Do I really want to be that generous? Do I really want to be that patient? Do I really want to be that involved? See, there's the level of distraction, but then there's the level of desires. But I think even more fundamentally than the level of desires is the seeds of doubt that the thief often wants to sow. Satan is called in Scripture the father of lies. And the fundamental and the primal lie that he has been telling since the beginning of time, like I mean Genesis chapter 2 time, is that God is not actually really good. I mean, think about what God says. He says, Adam and Eve, you can eat of like all the trees in the garden except for this one. And I'm asking you to trust me with this one. And Satan comes up to him, and notice how he takes God's words and subtly twists them and said, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So notice what he's doing. God's saying you can eat of any except for this one. And Satan comes in and says, did God say you shall not eat of any of the trees? He totally twists it to make it look like God is not really good and God is not really generous towards his people. He's actually stingy and he's a miser. 
See, I think underneath so many of our disordered desires is actually a fundamental doubt about the goodness and the generosity of God. Like, does he actually want what's best for us? Will he actually give us what is going to lead to our wholeness and our flourishing in life? Or do I need to go other places seeking it? You see, the the voice of the stranger, the thief, seeks to cast doubt on the goodness of the shepherd. And that's why I find it so interesting in John chapter 10 that the thing that Jesus is proclaiming to the people, to us, his sheep, is I am the good shepherd. He's like tapping right into that fundamental lie that is at the bedrock of so much of how we respond to God. And he's saying, I am the good shepherd. Three times, good, good, good. He's cutting right to the core of it. And he's getting any sense of the doubt of God's goodness out of there. And so when we come to the character of the shepherd, what shines forth so clearly is his goodness. In verse 3, we see that he speaks to his sheep personally and tenderly and individually, calling each of them by name. This is not just a vague goodness in the sky. This is a personal goodness that calls people by name. He leads them and he goes before them. He acts with authority. And then the big one is he lays down his life for the sheep that they may have abundant life. Think about this. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But, but Jesus is totally good. He doesn't need to kill and destroy to, and steal in order to have life. He is just an abundance of goodness and life. And so he can be totally generous and self-sacrificial. Have any of you read the book by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy? The Knowledge of the Holy, a little book. I think I was introduced to it at Biola University. I think it was my first theology class. I had to read that. It's, uh, it's been a little while ago. But he opens with this really interesting thought. He says, the most important thing about a person is what comes to mind when they hear the word God. Like what, what immediately comes to their mind, instinctively and intuitively, not just after they thought about it, when they hear the word God. That's the most important thing about them. And I've really wrestled with this over the years. I kind of go back and forth and be like, is that really true? But it seems to be that he's on about something. That what instinctively comes to us when we think about God actually guides the whole host of our desires, which then guides the whole host of our actions, which then guides the whole host of the way in which we relate and live our lives. And in his little chapter on God's goodness, He says this, he says, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill towards people. He is tenderhearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude towards all people is open and frank and friendly. (laughs) I like that, open and frank and friendly. By his nature, listen to this, by his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes pleasure in the happiness of his people. Think about that. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes pleasure in the happiness of his people. That is divine goodness. And that's why when Jesus comes in and says, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep that they may have life abundantly, we can trust that voice. We can totally and completely trust his voice. 
And even when that voice speaks things that we don't want to hear and leads us to places that we don't want to go, and even when it seems like that voice isn't even speaking and we're in moments of waiting and silence and difficulty and maybe even darkness, we can trust that voice. I want to end by just reading you the words of Psalm 23 one more time. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Now hear these words for your life. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.